All right. Well, here we are getting started on our 400th episode of the Sensibly Speaking podcast. Uh, my goodness, it has been a long time. I've been doing this podcast for many, many years. I think, uh, wow, I don't even know when I started. I should have probably looked it up. But um, it's been a real run, and it's been a lot of fun uh, doing this thing. And so so we got a lot to cover this uh, episode, actually. Let's go ahead and just get into the meat of what we're going to be doing here today, because we're going to be talking about um, what I thought was a great, you know, uh, bring them together kind of thing of I've been wanting to talk about cults and entertainment. And in fact, there's a whole series I'd love to do about that. And um, and. This is kind of along that line of there's a new series out on Netflix called How to Become a Cult Leader, and it follows in the same uh, production team, same format as How to Become a Tyrant, which was, um, oh, thank you for that super chat, Paul Mom. Thank you very much. Um, it follows in the same format of a sort of tongue-in-cheek, um, semi-satirical approach to talking about cults, and that's hard to do. That is very hard to do. It is hard to bring humor to this topic because it's a dark topic. Cults, destructive cults, the things that people get up to and taking advantage of and manipulating and abusing other people, cult leaders, you know, the sort of narcissistic, malignant, you know, horrible predatory people that we talk about all the time, are not funny people. And what they do isn't funny. And yet you can find humor in anything if you actually know how to do it and if you're good at it. And, um, and this is something that we need to find humor in because of the tragedy, because of the awfulness of the material, the awfulness of the subject, the, you know, the real gut-wrenching, like, oh, God, people do that, and oh, wow, that people let that happen to them, and oh, wow, people actually, you know, dot, 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 uh, yeah, and, uh, and it's all part of the human condition in moving our lives forward, I guess, is trying to find things to believe in, trying to find hope. You know, this is not a real hopeful world sometimes, and a lot of people's lives are, are, are touched by tragedy or touched by sadness or, or they, they can't seem to find a, a path to happiness or a path to um, how what, what they think of as salvation or eternity or hope in the future. Uh, and, and that makes sense. There's a lot of, you know, things that happen in people's lives that are kind of downers and they can uh, turn people down a path of, of kind of awful. And so here comes this cult leader. Here comes this person, this man, this woman, this group who offers you, um, very pleasant sounding, very intelligent sounding, uh, mantras and phrases and ideas and concepts that you can cling to or that you feel you need in that moment and and you you know and and people glom onto those things and then they can be taken advantage of because they are emotionally invested in the thing and that's probably the simplest way to explain what happens when people get involved in cults is they just get overly invested in a thing in a person or an ideal or a vision of the future of a future self or a future for the world or both. Um, 
And this could, of course, include like far into the future, eternity, immortality, all that kind of thing. But it's some kind of, it's usually wrapped up in some kind of goal or, or thing that people are going toward. And, um, and that's just all too common for people, you know. And, the, and it's in the cult leader's best interest to rile that up. To prompt, to overpromise and underdeliver, and overpromise and underdeliver. Anyway, and you know the whole anatomy of all of this stuff. So, so here's this new show on Netflix that actually was a show I thought of right after I saw the How to Become a Tyrant series uh, that that the same guys had done, where they walked through Saddam Hussein and a bunch of other. Uh, dictators in history and and laid out different principles and tactics that they would apply in becoming dictators or tyrants. Sort of a rule book. How do you do this? And I started, you you might have noticed, I did a few episodes where I talked about uh, the dictator problem. And that came from that whole how to become a tyrant concept because it was so obvious to me watching that original series a couple years ago, that this fit right into and was a perfect format to describe a cult leader. And so, of course, that's exactly what they thought too, and they went ahead and produced that second series. Um, I don't know if uh, how many of y'all have seen it, um, but it's I am going to say thumbs up, and then I'm going to explain for the rest of the podcast here why I'm recommending that uh, it's a show worth seeing. Is it the best possible cult education? No. Is it a is it a thorough covering of cults and cult leaders? No. But it's more thorough than you might think. And that's what I thought we might have some fun going over today is there's a lot of little gems and, and things, a lot of little facts and uh, pieces of, uh, yeah, facts strewn about this series and it's six episodes um, that are quite useful, that are very good, that are actually insightful even. And so while the tone, well, I'll just show you actually, why don't you go ahead and start by first going over um, some of the reviews that I found on Rotten Tomatoes of all places. Um, the How to Become a Cult Leader show, the season uh, reviews here from Rotten Tomatoes have it at, let me see if I can find the percentages here of, uh, of where they were at on their reviews. Here it is, 57% on the tomato meter, which is not great. Um, 65% audience score. So critic score for this series is 57% approval, which is just barely above average, above 50. And audience score out of fewer than 50 ratings. So not lots and lots of people chiming in on this. But I was curious about how it was received. And so going to the reviews and taking a look at, you know, just what average folks and what uh, regular critics Think of this. Here's some of the feedback on it. Um, like its sister series, How to Become a Tyrant, this fast-paced show combines archive footage, animation, and irony-filled narration with the intent of informing viewers about basic cult behavior. 
Uh, while it feels a little more average than most true crime documentaries, it is still filled with information and insight. There are a lot of serious themes covered across the series. I, I would agree with that. Um, and then Roger Roper from Chicago Sometimes as a critic says, it's not as if I think anyone would take this approach at face value, but it's at best a questionable approach to the material. And that, that tends to be the tone that I see taken in negative reviews of the show. It's not that it necessarily, they disagree with the facts or disagree with how it was, with the with, with material as it was laid out, but it's sort of like they have presentation problems. It's a little snarky. It's a little funny. It's a little sarcastic. It's, it's a little light in how it's dealing with very, very serious material. And all of these are completely understandable criticisms. As an ex-cult member myself, it would be very, very easy for me to become, you know, a little huffery and puffery about people treating this material lightly or with humor. And some people take real offense at that, and I get it. And I'm not at all going to push back on that and say you're wrong for feeling that way, but I don't feel that way. And so as an ex-cult member, I thought I would provide you know, my perspective on it, which is that we need, and I'll, I'll get into this more um, uh, later, but we need material provided on this subject that is consumable, that people are going to want to consume. And you're either going to be feeding them blood and gore and sensationalism or you're going to give them something that is snarky and dark and entertaining and that they can kind of sink their teeth into and give them factoids along the way and teach them something. And uh, anyway, thank you very much, by the way, guys, on all of your congratulations here on the 400. I really appreciate that. This has been a, um, I, I feel it's an accomplishment. I do. I, I was bragging about it last night. I was like, you know, folks who uh, do these, you know, 12 episode podcasts and call it a year. And I'm like, yeah, you bunch of amateurs. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's podcasting. I'm, I, I think I'm pretty hardcore when it comes to podcasting because I'm podcasting 52 weeks a year. I mean, I take some times off, uh, but I'm, I'm all, I'm every week, you know, I'm in here with interviews and, and insights and commentary and, uh, and I've worked very hard on this thing. So I'm really glad that I have some kind of audience here. So thank you very much for your well wishes and for coming around and watching this. Um, okay, so what is, so those are some of the reviews of the show, right? Sometimes clever, sometimes glib, some always superficial, it says. And I'm, eh, I don't know that it was completely superficial. Like I said, there were a few insightful statements made along the way. Um, design, here's a more, here's a, yeah, here's a better review from Nick Shager at the Daily Beast. He says, designed as a small screen instruction manual, it provides only cursory snapshots of its chosen areas of interest. Still, as a general overview of such outfits, bedrock traits, and strategies, it certainly knows about which it speaks. And that's, that's probably the one that I think is the most accurate uh, review from what I've seen on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, now, the Hollywood Reporter also had something to say about this, and I, I, I'm not going to go through their whole review here, but there was one, um, there was one paragraph in their review that I thought encapsulated some ideas I wanted to share with you. 
If you're doing, this is out of, um, again, this is Hollywood Reporter, um, Daniel Feinberg from July 27th, okay? If you're doing a 30-minute episode on a figure who has been the subject of a three-hour or six-hour streaming service doc, and at least a third of that time is dedicated to jokes... It's a certainty that the version of the story you're telling is going to be a superficial one, especially given how many of the talking heads in these segments previously appeared in other documentaries on those respective cults and their leaders. Whether it's Evor Davis on Manson or Jeff Gwynn on Jones or Benjamin Zeller on the Heaven's Gate pair, the series reduces a lot of expertise to platitudes, and that is true. Um, but as we know... As I will point out, that's not necessarily a bug. Platitudes are how people receive information easily and remember them. That's why we have them. <laughs> you know, thought-stopping cliches and platitudes and mantras and easy sayings and things like that are easy, gimmicky ways for us to receive and spread information. Uh, you know, sort of verbal memes, right? And that is what this series is filled with. And, and if people come away from this series with some of those in mind and some of them at their disposal, some of these facts and ideas and concepts about how cult recruitment works, about how cult retention works, about how mind control actually works, about how thought-stopping cliches, which were brought up in the series, how those work... If people walk away from this with even a surface-level understanding of that, then I believe this documentary has done the job it set out to do. It's a 101 approach. It's a very basic level. Uh, here's some facts and figures and information about infamous cult leaders. Every episode of the six series focuses on a specific cult leader. And the format, it, like with the original Tyrant series, is, okay, let's say, and this is the reason I love the series, is because I, years ago I started talking about this non-existent imaginary playbook. What if there was a cult leader playbook, an actual written book that said, here's how to do it? Well, that's the whole format and concept of the series. And again, it, you know, I, I was like, hey, you took my idea right out of my head, you jerks. <laughs> so, um, but they then turn it into something that is quite palatable. All right, so I put together, I, and I went and looking around. You know, you go through the literature or you go through popular media or you go through books and information about cults, and there isn't actually a cult leader playbook laid out anywhere and i've thought for years about writing one as a way of discussing this stuff well you know okay so these guys did it so i laid out i went through the whole series i, I watched the whole series and then this last week i watched it all again and i and in going through it again i pulled out every point I think I caught every point. I don't think I missed any of them. And we're going to go over them today. And I'm not going to try to redo the series here, okay? We're not going to go through step by step, point by point. And I'm not going to walk you through every single thing. Not even, I'm not even going to try to do that. 
But what I'd want to do is give you an overview of what the series offers, uh, so that you'll so from this review you'll have spoilers. But there are no spoilers. The show's not trying to get you with anything. It's just information everybody pretty much already knows about these leaders in one fashion or another. But there are bits and pieces and and sequential bits and testimonials and observations made in the course of telling these stories that are um, snarky, sarcastic, but also insightful. And so I thought we might have, um, I thought we might have a time going over some of it, okay? So I put together some slides, the cult leader playbook here, I did my little PowerPoint, and here's the first episode, okay, of the series is Build Your Foundation. Each episode is built around a basic point. And then there are a series of, uh, you can see, bulleted tactics that are broken down in the, in the episode. So the very first episode is all about Charles Manson. And, um, the, and the points that are gone over, the tactics that Charles Manson used as broken down in the show are these series of steps. Embrace your calling, get your dogma down, craft your persona, find your target demo, test people's loyalty and make noise, right? Be the center of attention. Now, did Charles Manson do those things? Yes, he did. did was that all he did? Not at all. He did lots of things. Um, and you'll see a podcast probably next week uh, that um, uh, I'll just flip back to me here. The next, probably next week, John Atak's uh, podcast that I that I recorded with him a few weeks ago about Charles Manson and Scientology. Uh, we go into all kinds of detail about that, and I understand he recently uh, did a show with Andrew Gold about that too. So I was like, damn it. I should have gotten my. I should have gotten our episode out earlier, uh, but anyway, I think you guys will enjoy our talk on that, and we go into some detail about Charles Manson and his involvement with Scientology, uh, quite a bit. Um, but I found it interesting that in the show here they did mention Scientology. They also mentioned other things. That in fact, the only time that this entire series on how to become a cult leader mentioned anything about Scientology, use that word, was in reference to Charles Manson, which is a provable fact, and so it's uh, they're on safe ground in mentioning that he studied uh, Dianetics and Scientology when he was in prison. Um, that's not something the church can sue them about. I mean, I suppose they could try, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't win. But there was not one word about L. Ron Hubbard or Scientology in the rest of this series. And I think the, um, I think the reason is obvious. Uh, Scientology is extremely litigious and they are also still an active cult. Most of the cults that were described in this, uh, series are not around anymore. Certainly Manson's is not. So these points about, you know, embrace your calling, get your dogma down, craft your persona, these are foundational aspects of beginning a cult. You have to have these things or you have to decide on these things in order to move forward. And they showed in the series on Manson exactly how he went through these steps. And they're absolutely right. These are all how to, you know, these are business marketing principles of how you start a group. And a cult is, at the end of the day, a group of people aligned around a common purpose or idea or dogma and uh, as interpreted by a cult leader. That is um, pretty irrefutable 
uh, you know, just kind of sociology. So, of course, the beginning of putting a cult together is going to include these points. Now, there's this business of testing people's loyalty and making noise, being the center of attention, that are crucial for cults. This is where we get culty uh, because, um, you know, they, anyway, it's, I think, pretty obvious. So, um, okay, so that was our first episode with Manson. Um, Not sure what else to really comment on about Manson except to say there's a lot of lore and mythology built up around Manson as well, which I find um, is common with these cult leaders. Uh, One of the things you find is in getting into this field and trying to study it for real and get the actual facts of things is how much mythology and, and, and nonsense gets built up around these guys too. Um, and how narratives are built around them that create wrong ideas. <laughs> Let's put it that way, right? I mean, Manson, for example, wasn't a Satan worshiper, but there's a ton of people lined up ready to prove that he was. And uh, things like that. And as far as his ability to, you know, peer into your eyes and make you do things and all that, you know, these sort of supernatural powers and gifts that get assigned to people is a little silly. Um, so we don't need to go anywhere there. And thankfully, this series avoids all that. It does, it does try to stick with a fairly um, fact-based narrative of how these cult leaders rose to the prominence that they did or managed to gain the influence that they had. Because Manson was, a, was a, a, a bum. I mean, he was homeless. He was having his followers eat by getting food out of dumpsters. I mean, they were dumpster diving all day long. They were, uh, you know, partaking of drugs, very, very powerful drugs. Like, not just LSD. LSD is not something that's necessarily going to uh, easily radicalize you. Uh, it's a very enlightening and mind-blowing kind of experience being uh, having an acid trip. But Jimson weed, that's a whole different matter. And that's a very different drug. And that doesn't get talked about at all. Instead, in the show, and this is a criticism that I have of this episode, of the first episode on Manson, they really focused in on a popular narrative with, with uh, Charles Manson that the book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People was a massive influence in his life. And somehow, by reading this magical tome, he was able to somehow brilliantly mind control everybody around him. And that's just that's just nonsense. I mean, the, the the book "How to Influence How to Win Friends and Influence People" is a book on how to manipulate people with with kindness and with care and with uh, empathy. It's a it's a manual on it, and uh, and it's and it's Hubbard didn't like it, which is interesting. Uh, he called it a manual on how to be one one, how to be covertly hostile which is interesting. He really didn't like it. I think it's because uh, some of the tricks that he uses are detailed precisely in that book. I'm pretty sure that was a book Hubbard actually did read. There's a lot of books Hubbard criticized or talked about or claimed to cite, which he never read or never had anything to do with. 
uh, didn't understand. But I think that was a book that was simple enough and popular enough that Hubbard actually sat down and read it. And, um, and sure enough, you know, there's stuff in that book that you can use in order to insinuate yourself into somebody's good graces or, you know, get people to like you. And yet, if you're an unlikable person over time, you're not going to be able to maintain that kind of thing. It's really hard. It's really hard. And cult leaders tend to be the kind of people who actually can maintain those masks. It's almost a superpower that they can do that over time. So I'm not at all saying that they got it wrong in saying that Charles Manson wasn't influenced or didn't utilize some of those principles in that book. But they present it in the, in the show as though it was like this master class and it was the key to unlocking mind control. And it's, and it's really not that. Not without other things added to the mix. And that's where my conversation with John comes in because Scientology was not just a passing thing with Charles Manson. He studied and was exposed to that material in prison for a long time, for good chunky stuff. So, um, so there's, and I don't want to spoil that whole podcast, but, um, but there's a lot there. And Scientology definitely had an influence on Manson. Like, no question. And that's really only squeakily touched upon once. They also mention his exposure to Christianity and Mormonism and other religious ideas. And I think there's this idea from the source material they probably took that from. I think there's this idea in the author's mind that Scientology is the same as Judaism and Buddhism and Christianity and other religions you might be exposed to. And they don't understand at all that Scientology is not those other things. The levels of mind control and thought reform techniques that are built into Scientology dwarf those other groups. I mean, they, they, those other groups wish they had the stuff Scientology had. It's, it's powerful stuff, and Manson picked up on that. So um, so I think that was very, very key to his ability to have influence and control over the people. It's not all of it. It's not ever any one thing. It's, it's lots of things. And Manson picked and chose from lots of different places. But Scientology was absolutely an influence for him. And we can't ignore that or say that's just not true because we don't, you know, because people don't understand it or don't want to believe it. Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and go into the next episode, and that was number two, was all about Jim Jones, and it was called Grow Your Flock. So here you have, you built your foundation, and now you're going to grow your flock, and we're going to use, a, we're going to talk about Jim Jones for an hour in the second episode of the series uh, to talk about this, and the various tactics that were highlighted in the cult leader playbook from this point of expanding and growing your group are blow people's minds, personalize your pitch, expand your territory, always have backup, and build your Eden. And in this case, that meant uh, elude investigation and police. This was in reference to Jonestown. For L. Ron Hubbard, that would have been the Sea Org. St. Hill and then the Sea Org, right? Uh, for other groups, that would be their centers or universities or uh, whatever. 
you know, you have these physical places. And so anyway, there's these various points where you're going to, you know, blow people's minds. This is a very, very common tactic. Uh, it's euphoria-inducing procedures or techniques. And prayer, of course, leads right into this. It's, it's a built-in mechanism that people jump right into in order to have awe or euphoric experiences. Uh, this is why religion is so favored and such a common tactic for cult leaders is because the, the mechanisms of thought reform are built in. Uh, to the entire framework of religion, the, the, the mantras and chanting and, and repetitious exercises and meditations and thought-reforming techniques, the things that will, that will, that will really Im- impinge on and change a person's feelings and emotions and, and focus in life, th- these are the techniques that do it. And so going in on a religious angle like Jim Jones did, right, is uh, kind of perfect. And, that, and he was somebody, apparently, according to the show, who was a religious, uh, what's the word, uh, roadie. Like he was somebody who went from church to church to church, and he played acted when he was a little kid at being a religious faith healer, being a religious pastor. This was just his thing. He... He loved the idea of standing in front of groups of people and having influence and control over them, and he built his whole life around that. And I thought it was broken down fairly well in the episode as to how he did it according to these points. So again, are these valid points of constructing a cult? Yeah, they are. Absolutely they are. Um, And did Jim Jones do these things? Yeah, yeah, he did. It's it's a good way of, of framing his life and his activities. And, of course, his version of Eden was kind of not that at all. In fact, uh, if people had realized what was... uh, Oh, thank you. If people had realized what was um, going on... um, Oh, that's interesting, Mitch. I didn't know that. (laughs) Interesting. Um, If people had known Jim Jones's mindset, at the point that the whole Jonestown thing actually began. He was on the run. That was his Sea Org. That was his, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm blowing town. I'm getting the hell out of here. Reporters and soon after law enforcement are going to be on my tail. And I got to get out of the States. And that's when he took off down there. And then the asshat, basically the very evil man that, it, that was Jim Jones made uh, a full-blown effort to produce propaganda films to bring his flock down from where they had been up in California down to Guyana. And he fooled, you know, a a thousand people uh, coming down there. And then tragedy ensued. So, um, So that was all laid out very well in the show for the format of the show. You know, could they have gotten into more on it absolutely is there more details to know about jim jones and how he controlled people down there beyond just having guns and his insanity and his mental breakdown oh absolutely and it's a fascinating story terrifying story but um because those people those poor people down there thought they were going down there to some kind of eden some kind of retreat where food and and lifestyle and everything were going to be awesome and it was nothing nothing but lies and they were doomed uh, from the moment they got on the plane to go down there. It was, it was just one of the saddest, 
chapters in cult history uh, that, that exist is Jonestown. And it was the thing that finally woke people up back in 1978 when news of this finally came out. A congressman died, staffers died, 900 some odd people including women and children were murdered this was not a this was not a pleasant or funny thing and they and they kind of gloss over that part in the show they don't go too deep into trying to find humor where it really doesn't exist but um it's it was a wake-up call for the entire western world but it wasn't enough of a wake-up call to be honest and even now, 30, 40 years later, we're, we're still, what, 50 years later, we're still, just still kind of waking up to the immense, the enormity of the threat of the problem. It's not a small problem. I, people, the problem I have about cults is that people treat it like this incredibly niche, weird, extremist, bizarre, rare, unusual thing. And when you know about it, when you've been in it, when you get out of it, when you educate yourself in it, is you guys, when you follow it, you know it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's, it's, it's baked into our ideology now. We, we, we got a long way to go to, to, to get past how culty our politics have gotten in this country, for example. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to do on this. And people who whistle past the graveyard on it are really doing that. And that's one, and that's again another reason why you'll see me say shows like this are needed. We need like 10 more shows like this, you know? And I don't want to supersaturate the market and make everybody sick of the subject. So I want it to happen over time. But we need lots and lots more of this, not less of this. Even if it is snarky and, and not necessarily respectful and not necessarily fully factual, it's still better than having nothing on this topic out there because people are clueless about how exposed and how threatened, how um, liable they are, how, how susceptible they are to thought reform techniques. They're utterly clueless on that. And they are a bit clueless on just how sneaky some of these groups can be and how nefarious they can be. So, okay. So I think um, this, you know, so, so talking about and exposing this stuff is always a good thing. All right. Let's go to the next episode, number three, reform their minds, which is absolutely the next step after you've grown your flock is you got to work on mind control. And for this one, they chose Jaime Gomez, uh, who started a group called Buddha Field. And um, this guy was, man, I mean, wow. He walked around like this. Uh, you, the picture you see of him there with his, with his shirt off, this, is, this was the guy. And he was kind of a failed at everything sort of guy. But the tactics that they covered in this particular episode, again, you'll notice as we go through these tactics in this playbook, the way it was broken down, are duplicative. They're saying the same thing over and over again and so with some of these tactics and points. Offer something exclusive. Again, another way of saying put something there that will induce euphoria. Get Blow people's minds. Right? Really give them an experience that they can't explain, don't understand, feel amazing about 
Well, Jaime Gomez learned how to do that. He actually studied cults and religions in order to learn how to do it. And he, I believe, studied hypnotism because he uses hypnotic techniques with his followers and got them into a confession culture where they were confessing their deepest, private, most intimate secrets and trauma to him. And he was keeping records and keeping very close tabs on uh, the trauma and personal secrets of every one of his followers and using them and siloing that information to control them. Uh, and he did that by these tactics. Offer something exclusive, demand service. In other words, make your followers work for you. Force conformity, make them uniform and alike and similar to one another. Sever prior bonds, super important. They have to not have any other gods before you as the cult leader. A very, very accurate point. Divide and conquer, leverage weaknesses. This is the siloing of information. This is where you use confession culture and snitch culture. Get people snitching on each other. They'll never fully trust each other, but they fully trust you as the cult leader. And if you are in that position, you own them. And for many, many years, Jaime Gomez owned a group of people who followed his every word. And then monopolize all information, right? Compartmentalization and false histories. Um, so... So these were the tactics or points that were demonstrated with Jaime. He did these things quite brilliantly, but the whole thing folded after just one member got out and sent an, a group email to all the members of the group because Jaime did not cut off external sources of information, and that was his point of failure. Uh, because he allowed the group members to still have outside contact because they had outside jobs, outside sources of income, and therefore they had email access, and therefore a former member who had had enough got out and started spilling the tea, started spilling the secrets on, let's go back to me here, on what was going on. And once the, and once the you know, snowball started going, right, once the word was out, and people started talking to each other, it was like everybody had secrets and nobody was telling everybody else about their secrets and their secret relationship with Jaime, including sexual, sexually compelled behavior, right? So, uh, Jaime was seducing and uh, forcing uh, sexual behavior on his followers while claiming to be celibate. So everybody knew that he wasn't celibate but nobody was talking to each other about it because everybody thought they were the only one who knew. So once the beans started getting spilled, um, it was uh, very, very quickly fall. It all fell apart. And I think within a year or two, they said uh, the, the, the cult was no more. So that's how fast, you know, it can happen once, you know, real good information starts coming in. But this went on for 20 years. He had these people following him thinking that he had the key to eternal happiness and success and, and personal power. And they thought if they followed him long enough and jumped through the loyalty hoops and, and did the service for him and gave him body massages or blowjobs or whatever it was they were doing, that he would give them the ultimate enlightenment. And he had hypnotic techniques that were very convincing that gave them, a, these were smart people, these were not a bunch of idiots, but they were 
in a euphoric daze about him and about what they were going to get from him. And he took full advantage of that for decades. Um, and the leader's playbook um, described his activity pretty well. You know, they, they aligned some, the principles that they talked about that he utilized, 100% accurate as far as I could tell. All right, so then we get to um, the next one, number episode number four. Oh, boy, one of our most favorite cult leaders. I mean, you want to talk about tragedies, Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gate. Uh, so Promise Eternity, and this was a really good way of highlighting this particular aspect of the cult leader playbook because Promise Eternity is absolutely a cult leader playbook theme. It is a, it's one of the greatest hits. You, you put there the idea that these human beings who are following you are somehow going to transcend or ascend into a higher state of being or consciousness or livingness, or whatever word you want to use to describe a state of being that is far, far superior to their human existence. We are all hyper aware of our flaws. We are all hyper aware of our foibles, our stupidities, our, our you know, the dumb stuff that we do every day. And here's somebody who appears to establish credibility as the first point of tactic here. So here's somebody who appears to be a personification of exactly what you want to be. And then they demand perfection, silence, doubt, change the script, and identify a sign. These are the tactics Applewhite used where he walked these people through a whole belief set that he and his wife were actually aliens from another place in the universe and they were here to ascend or transcend and bring the other followers along with them and turn them into these alien higher life forms who didn't need sex or carnal pleasures or uh, sustenance really or all this stuff, all this bullshit. And Applewhite wove this entire mythology around this and he was so convinced of it himself, and this is absolutely true. The man was a true believer. He was so convinced of it himself, and he was such a pleasant and good speaker that he somehow could get to these people, and clearly the people that he was appealing to were people who had deep emotional scars or problems or issues and probably could have benefited. And I say this, you know, without having inspected the case histories of every single person who was involved in Heaven's Gate. I'm speaking in generalities here, but I, I'm pretty sure that these were very, very troubled souls who needed a lot of therapy or counseling. And instead of getting effective help or care from their family or friends or somehow rejecting that help, because I'm sure... Statistically speaking, some of them must have been getting help, but it wasn't working or wasn't doing the job for them. And Marshall Applewhite's message of alien transcension somehow is the thing that appealed to them. And they were all aware, they were very, very aware of the fact that they were going to be doing away with their current vessel, their current body. And off they went. Um, so that's... You know, that was one of the most terrifying because 
you know, how do you get a group of people, I think it was 30 people, how do you convince them to, to do that to themselves? Well, you convince them of a couple things. Thing number one, you alter their reality to such a degree that they are living in a different reality where death is not death. And you absolutely convince them of the truth of that. That's first and foremost. And that is what Marshall Applewhite accomplished with every one of these individuals. None of them backed out. Not the, obviously, of the group of people who, who committed. So they were fully committed to this. And then you change their moral foundations so that you rewrite their entire concept of what is right and what is wrong. And that is one of the points that was brought up in the show was uh, not the moral thing, but the point of um, silencing doubt, changing the script, demanding perfection, right? Identifying a sign or symbol. That was the comet, the Hale-Bopp comet, right? Oh, there it is. That's, that's, what, that's what we're going to be doing. That's where the spaceship is, right? And that's how he did it. And this is proof positive. I'm just going to use this as a teaching moment because it's one of the most important lessons you can possibly learn in studying cultic phenomena. People's perception of reality is their reality. It, 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 it's, it's one of those like super simple things, observations or facts, but people miss it all the time. They think, they get up in the morning and they look around in their room and they walk around in the world and they go to work and they think thoughts and they see things and they do things and they actually believe that what they see and what they hear is an accurate, 100% accurate representation of what's going on around them. And it isn't. Everything you see, everything you hear, everything you think is influenced by your biases, your experience, your education, your language, your perceptions. All of it. You are not viewing reality. You are viewing and thinking with and perceiving your interpretation of reality. Thank you, RoboTube. That is an awesome super chat. And that's really important to know because then you can understand how it is that another human being can do things to you, can say things to you, can have you engage in practices or methods or techniques that will alter how you interpret the world. And once you're interpreting the world according to their playbook, according to how they want you to see the world and think about the world. Their biases become your biases. Their morals become your morals. And when these morals and biases and thoughts and ideas and beliefs are attached to a destructive belief system, that's a cult. And it all hinges on you not understanding how you yourself perceive the world. I, I, you know, I harp on this because it's. I, I really think it's important. This is how you. This is how they mess with your mind and change you into 
a a Ron bot or a Heaven's Gate person who's willing to you know rid yourself of your mortal coil, your your rid, rid yourself of this vessel, so that you can transcend to a higher one. This is the same schlock that we had in Scientology. You're not your body. Your body has nothing to do with who you are or what you are. I subscribe to this position, for this viewpoint, this entire worldview for decades. And it's a disassociative state. It's a state where you are separated from who and what you really are. Because of words and ideas and techniques that somebody else says to you or applies to you. It's wild. It's absolutely wild that we are susceptible to that. But every single human being is. And that's my teaching moment on that. Okay, so. uh, And of course, denial and various other things. All the logical fallacies, all the logical fallacies and cognitive biases that we talk about every week, right? That In my deck of cards here, right? My logical fallacies, they're all at play. So, you know, is there, you know, this is why critical thinking and, and emotional intelligence and understanding your own, yourself, Understanding how you perceive the world, understanding how you take in information and utilize it is everything to a successful life, to a happy life, to a life of interpreting reality fairly close to how reality really is versus this bullshit that these cult leaders will sell you. That's, the, that's how it works. Um, okay, so let's carry on here in going on through the episodes because we've, after Apple White, they then went into number five, control your image. Oh, perfect. Very important and absolutely part of the cult leader playbook. You must control your image. This is, this is crucial to the entire operation. And Shoko Asahara here, the guy who headed up a group in Japan called Om Shinrikyo, uh, which was going along fine as some little cult for this dude, all the way up until this dude decided that the world was against him and he needed to destroy it in order to save it. And he had already engaged in a path of murder of his own followers if they started expressing doubts or problems or issues. So he would already crossed the ultimate line of life and death over his own followers, and he had an inner circle of people who believed in him so much that they supported and engaged in uh, murderous conduct. That's what this guy pulled off. That dude right there actually pulled that off. As unbelievable as it is, looking at his incredibly dirty, disgusting visage, and uh, and actions, and I, I mean, the guy was half blind. He was an, he was just not a good man. He was a bully from the time he was a kid, and um, that's Shoko Asahara. But a bunch of people in Japan really dug his message, and um, and he had his whole cult leader playbook going full tilt. 
Recruit winners. This was a big one with him. This is a Scientology tactic, right? Get the VIPs. Get the celebrities. Get skilled labor. This was something Shoko Asahara was good at. He had actual like academics and chemists and, and scientists who bought into his messaging because guess what? Scientists and academics and uh, celebrities have emotional needs just like you and me and thee. They're just human beings, and they can fall in for this stuff just like anybody else can. Model purity, eliminate dissent, seduce the press. Shoko Asahara was not afraid of getting in front of a microphone, going out in public, going on TV, even having jokes made at his expense over some of his material. He was totally fine with all of it because it brought him more prestige, and it actually put him in a place where he decided he was going to run for public office and he got political, which is one of the other tactics there. He went into politics. This is something we'll see in the next episode, too, with Sun Young Moon uh, from the Moonies. But this one, uh, get political, and then when, of course, his political aspirations failed miserably, yeah, don't get mad, get revenge. And this is fair game. This is get back at them. This is the vindictive nature of every single cult leader. When they are shown uh, publicly to be shamed or ridiculed in a very irrefutable way, they become extremely, extremely dangerous. That's when they turn, right, is when they realize that the joyride they've been on of public, way, uh, public sentiment and approval and everything's great, and then they get handed a great big pile of fuck you, we think you're a scumbag, or we're not going to uh, elect you to office, or we don't like you. Oh, really? Well, then I have to kill you. That's where the vindictiveness comes out. L. Ron Hubbard had it. Jim Jones had it. He went absolutely insane. That was what Guyana was all about. Uh, that's what the Sea Org, in a way, was kind of about. If you look at how L. Ron Hubbard treated his own people, pushing peanuts down the deck of a hardwood ship as punishment with their noses, they had to push peanuts down the deck with their noses. He abused and, and tormented those people because they were his playthings. And L. Ron Hubbard loved it. He loved that power. Um, that was his moment for that right, is the Sea Org. That's where you get your most fanatical fans, fan, fanatic. And they will do anything you say because they are so sold on your message, on your theme, on your purpose, on your vision. And that was where L. Ron Hubbard got to by that point. They all, a lot of these guys will get to that point, that make break of, oh no, now people are coming after us, now we're facing scrutiny, now we're facing public criticism, and they double, triple, quadruple down, and the cult leaders almost uniformly go all in, and it becomes a matter of life and death. And that's why learning about David Miscavige or thinking about David Miscavige as a true believer or as somebody who is truly committed to Scientology, all in, right? It's This either goes, this either succeeds, or the world has to burn. It, it happens just that fast. And uh, Shoko Asahara was a great example of that, and they showed that very accurately, I thought, in the show. Um, 
Henny, you ask here, is perception, thoughts, and ideas that make someone think that is one's personality? Uh, to a great degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what makes up our personality is a sum total of our experiences, education, bias, you know, the way we think, the way we approach things, our moral foundations. That's, yeah, that's personality. Uh, there's, there's this other little X factor to personality that I won't go into or touch on because it's not a well... It's so studied. There's so much written on this stuff. And yet, so few solid answers. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, since I saw your question there, I thought I'd, I'd uh, go in on that. And, and yes, Exion, I couldn't help but think in watching Shoko Asahara achieve or try to achieve political fame and watching uh, Sun Myung Moon achieve political status and allyship that it got me thinking about L. Ron Hubbard's statement in 1980 that he was going to come back as a politician. I thought, you know, I think L. Ron Hubbard's been watching some of these guys, especially Moon probably. Oh, thank you, Welsh Batgammon, for that super chat. Appreciate that. Always appreciate the super chats, guys. Just uh, I'm not going to sit here and harp on and, uh, you know, rile you guys up for it, but uh, contributions are always appreciated. Okay. So, yes, I think that that statement from Hubbard about being a politician is actually interesting in light of the cult leader playbook and how other cult leaders have approached that subject. Um, okay, so if we go back to that for a second. Um, yeah, so that was episode number five. And then finally, the last one is Become Immortal. And this last one was, again, very interesting because Sun Myung Moon is the only one of these cats, the only one of these characters who actually survived all the way through and died of old age. I mean, Shoko Asahara was executed. Manson uh, died in jail or jailed, right? I mean, none of these guys were successful. Uh, they all got busted or failed or, you know, uh, got kicked out. Except Moon. Moon went all the way to the end. Uh, tactics that were gone over in this episode actually included sub-tactics. I put some uh, in of my own on this one. They didn't break it down this way, but I did. I added a few things here. So the tactic of pull a bait and switch, in the episode, they then went on to describe these four things under this tactic. Acceptable truths or, you know, telling lies that are not considered lies as long as, you know, you say it with a straight face. Uh, switching messages around, right? The bait and switch. We're going to get you in with this and then we're going to do this other thing on you instead. Using front groups. That's part of the bait and switch. And, of course, love bombing or what we call manipulative kindness. This is absolutely crucial as a cult tactic for recruitment and retention. Um, then there's the tactic of be a business man. Uh, and here we talk about two things, religious tax exemption for those groups that are religious in nature. Uh, groups like Nexium or martial arts dojos or acting classes don't go for religious exemption. Jaime, uh, what's his name, was not a religion as such, I don't think. I don't think his group was tax exempt. 
Uh, but many, many, many of those groups go the religion angle, as L. Ron Hubbard himself put it, because tax exemption is so easy to get in the United States and affords you so much uh, more power and money. And then, of course, followers are a labor force, which we saw earlier in the Jaime episode in terms of demanding service. Again, some of these are repetitious. It's the same tactic reworded episode to episode. But it's an important one. You utilize your followers as a workforce. They're a slave workforce for you. Of course you're going to use them as a cult leader. And Moon was at the top of the list of people who effectively did that. He made billions of dollars off of the backs of his uh, slave labor force, i.e. his followers. Give him a show, another way of putting euphoria, inducing public events. This is Scientology events. This is MLM events. This is Amway events, right? If, If you're having big public events, uh, Bill Gothard and his, you know, week-long uh, seminars or weekend seminars, uh, multi-level marketing, large group awareness training activities fall into this. Uh, this is Forum. This is Landmark. This is EST. Then there is Create the Next Generation, which is indoctrinating the children. And this is something Moon went all in on that L. Ron Hubbard avoided like the plague, and so did David Miscavige. They did it half-assed, and they did it very badly. And that's why we have two to three generations of Sea Org kids who are just traumatized cult survivors rather than cult followers. It's because L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige did not know how to do this tactic of Create the Next Generation. Moon had a much harder, much more solid grip on that concept. Then there is make friends in high places, which is getting uh, allies in government and civic leaders and things like that. Scientology plays at that. They have some efforts in that direction, but they are nothing compared to what Moon pulled off. The man had pictures taken with presidents. Uh, Sun Myung Moon was a master at PR. And finally, become eternal. And that is uh, the product of all of that work, is you, your name is immortalized forever, which was the ultimate goal of L. Ron Hubbard, and he just didn't know all the tactics in the playbook, actually. He, L. Ron Hubbard had a major falling down on that point of utilizing the children and utilizing the next generations of your cult members followers to create your next generation of followers, et cetera, et cetera. If you do that right, and Moon really focused on that a lot harder, and I'm not saying he did it right, but he did it better than what the Sea Org did. It's a really interesting compare contrast between how the Moonies dealt with their blessed children, their, their, their children born not of original sin. And some of you might remember the interview I did with Jen Kiaba, who was one of those children. She was born into the Moonies, and she had uh, quite a story to tell, right? Where Moon screwed it up is he put couples together who shouldn't have been together. And they didn't even know each other. I mean, Moon was just, you know, talk about on a power trip from hell. And so he was putting couples together who, you know, their relationships were a, a traumatic disaster, And so that generation of children were, you know, maybe going to make it, maybe going to have longevity, but most of them probably didn't. Anyway, um, I'll get into that in a second. So, So this kid thing is kind of important, I thought, 
as a as a point of difference and and a point where Scientology really really blew it they had such an opportunity and they just totally screwed it up right by mis by abusing those kids by uh, neglecting those children by not letting the parents connect with those children because just think about this for a second okay just think about it from the cult leaders point of view for a moment who better to indoctrinate your children than the parents? The parents are true believers. They're sold. So rather than take the kids away from the parents, have the kids get fully indoctrinated by the parents and then put all the control paraf- you know, apparatus in place to separate the kids after they're true believers. I mean, this is not rocket science. Moon figured it out. There are people who have figured this out. And L. Ron Hubbard absolutely did not. Dave Miscavige, I think, hates kids. I think he's scared of them or something. So anyway, uh, I don't know. I don't know why they did not take an obvious opportunity and they just squandered it. They totally screwed it up. And the result of that was, you know, just these traumatized, ruined lives of, of, like I said, two to three generations of Sea Org members. So, you know, pretty, pretty screwed up. Not that their lives necessarily would have been a whole lot better as indoctrinated Sea Org members, of course, but it would have been, a, anyway, I'm just saying, it would have been a very, very different picture. Um, yeah, exactly, Liz. That's exactly the point, is L. Ron Hubbard saw children as a distraction to what he was doing to the parents, and he thought, oh, these kids are going to distract the parents away from the cause, rather than utilize the children to get the parents to double down on the cause, right? If he'd been a little more clever, a little less crazy, a little less paranoid, a little bit less of an asshole, then he probably could have figured his way through this, right? But Aaron Hubbard hated kids. Clearly he did. His, his own children were uh, given short shrift by him 100% of the time. He didn't want any of his kids around, you notice, at his last days. He'd eschewed all of them. L. Ron Hubbard was not big on kids, and neither is David Miscavige. Whether he picked that up from Hubbard or whether he, uh, you know, just doesn't like him himself or whatever, I have no idea. But quite honestly, we're we're better off for it. Um, okay, so have I ever heard of anyone, anything about science, Scientology killing anyone with malice aforethought? Um, all I'm going to say on that is that the death of Shelley Miscavige's mom, Flo Barnett, is... By suicide with a rifle shot three times, I find that very suspicious. Um, it's the only one that we look at and go, that's weird. Um, the whole debacle with Lisa McPherson was not premeditated. It was just negligence and gross, gross, gross mistreatment of an already bad situation. But Flo Barnett's death is weird, very, very weird. So, um, so that's something to look forward to or look into. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, guys. So, 
So those were the, uh, you know, written down, those are all the points of the cult leader playbook as broken down in how to become a cult leader. Are they accurate? Yeah. Are they duplicative? Yeah. You know, there are, there are saying the same thing more than once in a few places, but a lot of the tactics, I will not say they are all there because I'd have to do a much more exhaustive review than what I've done in order to say, well, it was a complete picture. But they certainly talk to the people who know what they're talking about. They had Yanya Lalich on there. They had Rachel Bernstein on there. They had cult survivors on there of some note. Um, you know, people who experienced it, know what they're talking about, went and got some education about it. And so, except for Amanda Montel. That's a, that's a woman that I will call out because I, I don't think she really does know what she's talking about. But... Everybody else in the series, in terms of the experts they brought on and the and the clips they had and the quotes that they used, I was okay with. I was I was fully fine on that. At some point, I'll have to do an Amanda Montel breakdown, but I'm not into like creating personal feuds with other people. But I have to I have to call her out because uh, the some of the stuff she says about cults is just plain wrong. And she's got some weird ideas about language and stuff. But I'm not going to use this podcast to go deeper into that. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it really is. Coercive control is an art to the psycho. That is absolutely true. You nailed it there. So, uh, so that is my, you know, so all things sort of said and done as we come to the end of it, I thought I'd point out a couple things about the show that I thought were kind of interesting. Point number one is the, 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 the elephant in the room with, with the, with the show the, you know, one, probably one of the biggest problems with the show is it presents how to be a cult leader and it presents you with all of these playbook tactics, but it's showing you five out of six stories of failure. These tactics do not lead to lifelong success. And there's a lot of people who seem to think that they do. And I hope that it's clear in kind of really taking a, a, a plain look at the obviousness of the situation that five out of six of the most famous cult leaders that anybody has ever heard of died miserably and well before they wanted to. A f absolute failures. So the cult leader playbook is something that is often misused or not well applied or not well done. And they never mention that. And that's kind of interesting because they should have. They should have pointed that out. Being a cult leader is one of the most dangerous things you can choose as a career path. Victimizing your fellow man is something that eventually is going to catch up with you most of the time. Now, we can look at somebody like Moon, who had, by the way, and this was not touched on at all, not even a little bit in the episode, and I wish it had been, is there was a great deal of money and you know, financing and government support of Moon's efforts. Um, there's a lot to know about that. And I only know a little tiny bit about it. I am no Moon expert. Um, not compared to, say, Steve Hassan or other ex-Moonies who can talk about this at great length. Um, but there are government connections and finances and money involved in the moon operation that, well go, that go well beyond just one man climbing a, 
a ladder of influence and rising to this global position of international power. Moon was not a small-time cult leader. Sun Myung Moon was a powerful individual. And uh, he had his hands in all kinds of stuff. I mean, really, really nasty stuff. Gun running, violent stuff. Um, And now that his empire has basically been split it's divide and conquer now with his family his 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 legacy is being you know is that his his organization is being torn apart from the inside and that's a good thing we should be two thumbs up on that uh these are not operations that tend to have longevity or you know legs they really don't and excuse me and i really feel that that's something that should have been highlighted in the in the episodes but that wasn't really the the tack they were taking and i get it um oh thanks linda thanks for the super chat that's that's really good that's right that's exactly right seems to be the trigger was the person's ego and their ultimate downfall you absolutely nailed it there and yeah xi and i am referring to moon sushi industry as just one of many things that they were making money on. I mean, if we start talking about the slave labor of the Moonies running around the country in vans, if you go to my Jen Kiaba interview, I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago, it's well worth listening to. And it's something I should circle back around on because the Mooney empire is built on the backs of slave labor, Uh, children labor, uh, child, you know, there's child trafficking, uh, sex trafficking, labor trafficking. It's, it's bad. Like, like it's as bad as you can, as it can get kind of bad. And, um, and so stories about sleep deprivation and food deprivation and the sushi industry sound interesting, but they don't really give the magnitude of the problem. And that's the only thing that a, that a snarky, darkly sarcastic sort of overview of these things, that's what it misses. Um, that would have been better to have gotten across. Okay, so that was a that was a criticism that I had of the of the show. Um, the other thing I wondered about, and this is just one, just me, me kind of wondering, but I really wonder if Marshall Applewhite uh, also, like we believe Elron Hubbard did, I wonder if he suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. There were he was. There's no question. I mean, it, 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 I mean, there's no question Marshall Applewhite from Heaven's Gate was a true believer. I mean, he went all the way. I mean, he castrated himself, and he had his member, I mean, like, all the way. So that's as committed as you're going to get. Doesn't, doesn't relieve him of any responsibility or uh, make him a better person because he was a true believer. He was crazy. And he in, engendered crazy in other people. It was a contagious psychosis. I would have liked that theory to have been looked at or talked about a little bit in terms of how that group operated. Because originally it wasn't just Marshall. It was his wife too. It was two. And two is more than one. And that matters when it comes to getting support or agreement from other people. It's interesting how influence works that way. But anyway, I kind of wondered about um, uh, whether... Um, TLE might have been temporal lobe epilepsy might have been a thing there let me check if I can find that podcast for you yeah growing up in the Moonies sensibly speaking podcast number 334 
333 and 334. So two parts with Jen Kiaba, who was one of the girls born into the Moonies as a result of those big group weddings. And her parents were miserable. And her family was miserable. Uh, that was Moon's legacy because he, he, he screwed that whole thing up. Okay. Um, yeah, big time. Big time, Linda. Okay, so... I think we have kind of covered this. So I, I guess you've kind of gotten the idea through all of this and going through all the episodes here as I did. Um, you know, you got a pretty good overview of the show. I encourage you to take a look at it, come up with your own conclusions. I'd love to hear your feedback and criticisms of how to become a cult leader and how we might utilize that information and the other things I do on this channel to communicate these concepts to people in a broad format in a way that they will accept, okay, I want to harp on that a little bit because humor goes a long way to getting across tragic, awful things. It really is a great medium to use to communicate to people in a way that they will accept. And I'd, I, I, like I said, I wish I was funnier so I could do that more myself, but I, I appreciate the effort. And for those reasons, I'm, you know, I'm, my, my final word on this is two thumbs up. And, um, and I think I've addressed all the reasons as to why I think that way. So that all being said, thank you very much for coming around, everybody, and watching this live version of my podcast. I will get this out uh, in audio form uh, over the weekend after this goes through the YouTube process. It usually takes a day for YouTube to finish processing the whole thing so I can download it and then get you guys the uh, audio version and post it as a podcast like I always do. I believe I will be doing a live critical Q&A tomorrow. So I'm just having fun live streaming all weekend. This has just been live, live, live all week. So um, so I hope you guys got a chance to check out the uh, live show last night, the critical conversations. Uh, we got to talk about some cult stuff. And uh, join me tomorrow for critical Q&A. Okay, so I, I just decided right now I'm going to do it live tomorrow. So uh, let's go ahead and say same bat time, same bat channel. That <laughs> seems appropriate. And uh, with that, um, I will see you guys tomorrow. All right. And uh, you guys are awesome. Thank you very much again for all the super chats and support. Oh, let me, let me plug a few things, okay? Um, one, critical merchandise, okay? You guys looking for, you know, fun kind of imagery, hats, shirts, stuff like that. I, I've produced some stuff. Check it out. It's on the channel here. It's at my Spreadshirt sort. Link is below in the description section to this video. Uh, also, I want to plug, um, if you didn't know, I think most of you all know, but I, I did write a book about Scientology. I hardly ever talk about it anymore, but it's out there. It's Scientology A to Zenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about, and you all should check it out. And then I want to also plug my consultancy, okay? I do consulting, and if you need help, if you would like to talk to me one-on-one -on -one in, you know, like uh, chat, I can I can inform, I can educate, I can help, I can listen, um, and I can consult, okay? I am not a counselor or therapist. I will not give you therapy, but I will give you help. And I have been known to help people who have just come out of cults, who have been out of cults for a while, or family or friends. If you have somebody who's in a coercive situation, whether it's a domestic situation, partnership, marriage, family, 
or cult situation, I absolutely can help. So contact me and let's talk. Um, okay. That all being said, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye, guys.